Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I'm sure you've probably heard the expression before, that's a sacred cow. And may, you may or may not know where that comes from. Of course, there, is, there are people in various parts of the world who believe that cows are sacred. It's part of their religious belief. And so that creates all kinds of weird things because if a cow is sacred, not only can you not kill the cow, but if the cow walks into your business while you're trying to do business, you can't do anything to make the cow leave. So, you know, you, you look up, there's a cow coming, you want to be sure and close your door because if he comes into your house, the cow's sacred. You can't touch the cow and bother the cow, right? If he walks out in front of traffic, same thing. And so they have this belief in the this, in this sacredness of cows, and it creates all kinds of problems in the world. Of course, the bitter irony is that you have this land that is filled with starving people uh, who can't eat the livestock. And so the concept or idea of a sacred cow has come to mean any belief or practice that is both cherished and senseless. And the truth is, companies can have sacred cows. Families can have sacred cows. And of course, churches can have sacred cows. In fact, churches have a lot of cows that are sacred, which means we have a lot of beliefs and practices that are both cherished and senseless. Um, let me give you an example. How do we baptize around here? Well, uh, when it, and I'm not talking about the theological part of it or any of that. I'm talking about the practical aspect. Like if you come to church and someone gets baptized, how do we always do it? You, over here in the baptistry, have you accepted Jesus? Yes. On the basis of that, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then how do we do it? Every time we do it, just like this. You take them right here, and you take them back, and you lift them up, right? Always this direction, right? Why do we do it that way? Well, because that's the way Jesus did it. Of course, right? You don't believe that, do you? We don't know how Jesus did it. Why do we do it that way? Well, one time we had this left-handed youth minister, and he came in, and he baptized this way, like that. And Lorita Moody came up to me afterwards and said, that one didn't count. <laughs> I said, why not, Lorita? Now, I love Lorita, but she could be a lot. I said, why not, Lorita? She said, he did it the wrong direction. I said, Lorita, it doesn't matter what direction you baptize. She said, yes, it does. You're supposed to be facing Jerusalem. I said, Lorita, we don't even know which direction Jerusalem is. And if we did, we don't have to baptize people facing Jerusalem. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. And she said, well, that's the way you're supposed to do it. And that one didn't, didn't take. And she turned around and walked off. <laughs> the other question, why do we always baptize people backward? One time we had this Korean church come in. And the Korean pastor gets up and he goes to baptize them. Turns out Korean people baptize people forward like this. And when I first saw that, I thought, can you do that? Is, is that a real baptism? Does that take? I mean, can we count on that person's salvation? You know, I mean, that's, it's like we've never, those are seven last words of the church. We've never done it that way before, right? And so I'm like, I don't know if you can do that or not. And then we had this guy come to the church for membership uh, by baptism. His name was Andrew Sunderman. He was German. He was 6'6", 320 pounds, played a year for the Oakland Raiders. Uh, I talked to my friend Nick, and I said, Nick, have you seen our newest church member? He said, have I? I walked by, and there was a small eclipse. 
I mean, this guy was big. And I said, I'm in deep trouble because I've got to baptize him and there's no way I can lift him. So we enlist the support of another guy and then it dawned on me, we're baptizing this guy Korean style. (laughs) And we went forward. And let me just tell you, it was so much easier. So, because when you're baptizing people this way, if their feet float up, now you've got to pick them up and set them back in and push them up like a telephone pole. And they get water up their nose and everything else. And so I'm like, baptizing forward is so much easier. And then after I baptized him, I went back to baptizing people backwards. And we've been doing it that way ever since. You know why? Because sacred cows are hard to kill, right? The truth is we do things because we've always done things a certain way and we never think about it. And that may or may not have any implications when it comes to being baptized like that and how you baptize, whether you do it forward, backward, or sideways or whatever. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is what's going on in the heart of the guy that's in the water or the girl. And she said, you know, I want everybody to know that I'm a follower of Jesus, right? And that's really what matters. But we do have these sacred cows, and sacred cows are hard to kill. And that's why John chapter 5 becomes so important for us, because Jesus takes up a sacred cow of the Jews. So let's go there, John chapter 5. Now, the big news in this story is the power of Christ to heal. That's the big news. Uh, He comes to a place called Bethesda. We're going to see in a minute he's going to heal a guy. And that's the big news, the power of Christ to heal. But the bigger news, and really the core of the story, becomes not so much the guy that was healed, but what's happening in the lives of the people who react to the way he was healed and more particularly the day he was healed. So John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus, last time we saw him, he's up in Galilee in the north. He's got to go down to Jerusalem. Notice it's an idiom of the Hebrew and I've pointed this out many times. Anytime they were traveling toward Jerusalem, they were going up. So even though he's coming from the north to the south, we would typically say he's going down to Jerusalem, but the Jews would always say you're going up to Jerusalem when you're going toward Jerusalem. You're going down from Jerusalem when you're going away from Jerusalem. So Jesus had to go up to Jerusalem from the north to the south. Now there uh, is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, which means the house of healing, having five porticos. Those are porches with columns. And, and I, I, so it, it works out like this. And I thought this was interesting. The sheep gate is at the north end of the temple. And it was the gate through which all of the livestock would come that was going to be sacrificed. So, you know, you would go to the temple and you maybe you weren't a rancher or a shepherd. And so you go buy you a sheep and they'd bring the sheep in through the sheep gate and that sheep would be sacrificed for you that day. And I thought and I love these little things that it's so interesting that Jesus, the Lamb of God, entered the temple through the sheep gate. And that wasn't by accident, obviously. But while he's on his way through the sheep gate, outside the sheep gate, outside the temple, there's a little rectangular pool called the Pool of Bethesda. And it's where they would bring all of the sick people. It said, in in these lay a multitude, and that word means a large, large crowd. So there's lots and lots of them. Of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. And so that word sick is a word that means weakness. Probably a sickness that was related to late stage cancer where they become invalided and they can't, uh, they're no longer ambulatory, right? So they're sick, they're weak. And then 
Blind, of course, is people who can't see, and lame are people who are otherwise healthy, but they can't walk. And then withered uh, means dried up. And so these are probably people in late stage life. They've just lost their vitality. Uh, and, and the point is that these are people who can't take care of themselves. They're invalids. And, and I wonder if this isn't like something like a nursing home around a swimming pool, because uh, what would happen is the, the loving family wouldn't know what to do with them, couldn't really care for them. And so they would bring them there and just in hopes that they would get a miracle in the pool of Bethesda. Um, because verse 4 really explains why they were there. It says, For an angel of the Lord went down. And by the way, this isn't in the stronger manuscripts, um, and and a lot of scholars think that this verse was inserted uh, by a scribe in order to give context to the superstition that was uh, uh, prevalent related to the pool at Bethesda. So he says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, whoever then first after the stirring of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, they know now that Bethesda had an underground stream, and it was one of those peculiar streams that would sometimes build up in pressure, and then suddenly there would be a release of the pressure, and the pressure would stir the pool kind of like a jacuzzi. But in that day, first century, these people were terrifically superstitious about everything. There was no concept of scientific discovery or scientific method or any of that stuff. And so everything was a bit of a wonderment. And so they had concluded from that that there was an angel that was going into the water, stirring the water, first one in would get healed. And uh, we're, we're left with really not knowing whether that was true or not. Who knows? Um, but a man was there, verse uh, 5, who had been ill for 38 years. Now, he hadn't been at the pool at Bethesda 38 years. He had been sick for 38 years, and his sickness was crippling. He, he couldn't move. He was laying, right? Um, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, and this is a stunning question, do you wish to get well? I mean, isn't that an odd question to ask somebody that's been sick for 38 years? I mean, if you ask me that, I'm going to go, what do you think? I mean, of course I want to get well. Who wouldn't want to get well? But the truth is, not everybody wants to get well. And sometimes in our sickness, we grow accustomed to our sickness. We become institutionalized by our sickness. There's that great line out of, out of uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Those of you who saw the movie, it's a movie, uh, Steve King's short story that was turned into a movie about a prison, I think, in the 60s. And uh, so the conversation is among the prisoners. One of the prisoners uh, that went by the name Red, Morgan Freeman's character, uh, was talking about another prisoner who had recently been paroled after 50 years, and he said that guy had been institutionalized. And then he explained what he meant by saying this. And man, this is insightful. He said, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. And, and there were probably people at Bethesda, sick people who had become institutionalized. Maybe you're that way, you know. Church people can become institutionalized. You come and you sit, and there's sin in your life, and you know you've never dealt with it, and you know you need the redemptive power of the Holy Spirit in you, but for whatever reason, you just become accustomed to the life. 
and accustomed to the, to the pummeling of guilt and shame that goes along with that. And you've become institutionalized in sin. And you may come to church every week, but you've never. So Jesus says to you, do you want to get well? And the answer is not today. Not today. Uh, maybe another day, but not today. And we, we begin to be like that. And so it's really not that strange of a question that Jesus would say to this guy, do you want to be well? Because there are a lot of people who don't, but this guy did. And so he, he sort of gives him the reason why he's not well. Sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. So he's still clinging to sort of this false hope of this angel in the water. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And look what Jesus said. He kind of cuts to the chase. It's like, we're not going to talk about any more of these arguments or any reasons or rationale or anything. Let's just get to the heart of it, okay? And I love this about him. He says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And you know, it's interesting to me that whenever Jesus moves in us, he always requires something from us. And the thing he's requiring from us is faith to believe. He has just told this guy to do something he has not been able to do for 38 years. Get up and walk. And so for this guy to make the effort to get up and walk was really an act of faith. And it was that first moment toward his healing, and we see the power of that in the whole uh, redemption story of, yeah, there's these parallel correlations between physical healing and spiritual healing where God says to you, you really want to be healed, you're going to have to get up. You're going to have to step out on faith. You're going to have to trust and believe. And look what happened, verse 9, immediately the man became well picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, there's a little line here at the end. We'll come back around to this. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Now, realize the Bible has this incredible economy of words, and it doesn't waste words. So if it puts it was on the Sabbath, that's important. Mark that underline it. We'll get back to it. But the main point here that's going on is, once again, the power of Christ was manifest through supernatural healing. And that's something I don't want you to miss. I mean, God is able to heal that's why we pray for healing. That's why we seek the healing of the Father on behalf of the people that we love and care about. And God, I want you to hear this. God can heal you. He can heal you physically. He can heal that addiction that you're wrestling with, whether it's porn or, or uh, uh, alcohol or substance abuse or, you know, some sort of theft or whatever it is. We, there's so many different ways that sin addicts us and it enslaves us. And, and you need to know he's more powerful than your addiction. Mama and daddy, you need to know too he's powerful over your child. And so you pray for them. And that's the power of this story. This story validates the awesome power of Jesus because it says, hey, he is able but you know, like anything else Jesus did, he tended to always do two things at once. And notice that of all the people in this crowd, he didn't heal everybody. He just healed one guy that day. It says there was a big crowd, a multitude, and he only selected one out of that. Why did he do that? Well, maybe he had a different purpose. Maybe healing wasn't the only purpose. What did Jesus tell that man to do? What did he say? He said, get up. What else did he say? He said, get up, take up your pallet, walk. Do you hear that? Now, why would Jesus tell that guy to take up his pallet? You ever think about that? G. Campbell Morgan said, in order to make no provision for a relapse, 
If he left the pallet, he might be tempted to return to it, and people tend to do that. So you can't leave your pallet there thinking, I'll come back to my pallet later. I'm leaving this behind. And there may be truth in that, and I can certainly feel it. But I think Jesus had another purpose in mind. Notice that little line at the end. It said what? It was the Sabbath. And according to the man-made rules of the religious leaders of Jesus' time, carrying a pallet was a violation of the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. So Jesus' broader purpose beyond just healing this guy was this. Jesus was deliberately picking a fight with the religious leaders in order to barbecue one of the sacred cows. And we need to take this because there's stuff here for us too. Here's why. First of all, sacred cows twist our priorities. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So, you know, Jesus has set this trap. It's like he's got this trap for raccoons and he put a hot dog in it and the Jews just, the Pharisees were the raccoons and they ran right into the trap. They see this guy walking around carrying his pallet and the first thing they say is, what are you doing carrying that pallet? That's unlawful. But he answered them, the guy that made me well... (laughs) I don't know about all this, but the guy that made me well told me to pick up my pallet. I pick up my pallet, man, I'm walking, right? Now look, Sabbath rest was part of the Ten Commandments. That's what God, it's the fourth of the commandments, and the commandment was, you know, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But it wasn't terribly specific, you know, what exactly that means. And so the Jews decided that they would add some rules to flesh out what they figured God meant. And so they created all these man-made rules that were in, Uh, sort of to identify what work is, right? And we've talked about this before. For example, you couldn't light a candle on Saturday, which was the Sabbath. You couldn't, and by the way, Sunday's not the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's day. It's the day of resurrection. The Sabbath was Saturday. Uh, You couldn't light a candle on Saturday. You couldn't cook or walk more than a certain number of feet. You couldn't tie a knot. Uh, So if you had a bucket and a rope. You couldn't tie a knot. Remember we talked about that, but you could tie a knot on a corset. They had to make exceptions. So if you tied your rope to a corset, then you could tie the corset to the bucket and you could get your water. That's the kind of idiocy that was going on as a result of that. Um, You couldn't put a brooch on your dress, uh, but you for sure couldn't carry your pallet. And so they missed the whole point. Look, Sabbath wasn't about working. Sabbath was about resting. And they really should have asked the question, not what is work, but they should have asked the question, what is rest? Because when they asked the question, what is work, they flipped the whole purpose of the Sabbath upside down. And now man serves the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath serving man. That's exactly what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. He said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus intentionally heals this guy on the Sabbath and then baits the religious leaders by telling him to carry around his pallet. And here's the really insane part, and I don't want you to miss this. Nobody, nobody saw the absurdity of it. None of the religious leaders seemed to notice that this man who had been sick for 38 years, sitting around essentially a nursing home around Bethesda Pool, nobody seemed to realize that this guy is walking around. All they could say is that he's carrying his pallet. And they can only focus on the fact that he's doing it on Saturday. And you know what that says? That says their rules mattered more than that guy's life. And it's a brilliant way that Jesus just exposes the absurdity of this sacred cow. 
their priorities were out of whack. They just had become so consumed with their rules that they forgot the greater thing, which is to become consumed with people and with God and the God that loves those people. Do you get it? Are you feeling it? And that's what sacred cows do. They, they twist priorities. You go to a church that's full of sacred cows, and they're going to care more about the flowers or the color of the carpet or the fact that the walls are getting dirty than they're going to care about the fact that people are getting saved. And that's why churches are getting empty. You know, the most organized, beautiful, perfect place in the world is a cemetery, but nobody wants to join. You know what I'm saying? Second thing is sacred cows undermine our mission. See, when your priorities get out of whack, then your mission gets undermined. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Don't sin anymore. So apparently there was some connection between sin and his sickness so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now watch. This is where the thing switches. This is where it begins to turn on Jesus. At first they were like, eh, we don't know about this guy. And then he turns the tables and it's like, we don't like this guy. And now it's like uh, uh, we're beginning to persecute this guy. It, it's a sort of an ongoing building thing because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But then Jesus says something that ratchets the whole thing up to a whole nother level. He answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And this is the statement that really shattered the Jews. And it's what turned them against Jesus. I mean, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh he rested. Yeah, but God never stops working. Like God's not going to take the Sabbath off because God's purpose is redemption. The Jews knew this. The legendary Jewish philosopher Philo said, God never ceases doing but as it is the property of fire to burn and snow to chill, so it is the property of God to do. And so Jesus is saying, my father never stops working. I don't stop working. He doesn't take a day off from calling people to salvation. That's his purpose. Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He never stops doing that. And Jesus never let a man-made rule keep him from making a man whole. Are you there? He would never let a man-made rule keep from making a man whole. But it, it was the deeper implication for the Jews when he said, my father doesn't stop working, I don't stop working. He has suddenly identified himself with God. And that has taken it to another level with them. Look at what it says in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more, circle that word, to kill him. At first, they didn't know about him. Then they didn't like him. Then they started persecuting him, but now they want to kill him. Do you feel how it's read? And here's why. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And notice how this infatuation with Sabbath rules was undermining the mission. The mission of the Pharisee was the holiness of God. They said, we've dedicated ourselves to righteousness. And they were looking for the Messiah. They were in hopes of the Messiah. They were praying for the Messiah. And now the Messiah is looking at them. They're face to face with the Messiah. But they are so consumed with their sacred cows, they can't see the Holy One in front of them. 
And their whole mission has been undermined as a consequence of that. And this should be a cautionary tale for the church. I mean, you have to have rules, right? Because things get out of order. I get it. There's no perfect rule. And we have to be careful because we can make so many rules that we leave no room for people. You know, it's kind of like Bill Cosby used to do this thing. This is back when Bill Cosby was a good guy. And he, he would do this thing where he talked about the kid on the block got a new football. And he said, you can't drop it or kick it or pass it or do anything, but you can play with the football. And that's what churches do. And we can make so many rules that people can't even find Jesus. This is why Jesus reduced the whole thing to two rules. What were his rules? What did he say? What are his commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's rule number one. What's rule number two? Love your neighbor as yourself. He just gave us two rules. Those are the only two commandments we have in the new covenant. Love God. He said, now in this all... This fulfills all the law and the prophets. So the whole Testament's wrapped up in those two ideas. But it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? In, in, in fact, he, he would say later, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then uh, John would later write in a letter, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And so we're given these, these two rules, minimalized rules. Because, you know, you got to have some rules because people are messy, right? People are going to mess stuff up and they're going to bump into each other and they're going to get mad and they're going to. So, yeah, that's that. We have to remember the greater purpose. We got to let people be messy. You got to deal with people. You know, I, I was telling Chase the other day, I'm trying to, you know, sort of pour into Chase a little bit as, as he's, man, he's so gifted and God's using him so many ways. We were talking about kids and camp and all that stuff. And I said, you know, there's a proverb that says this. It says, where there is no ox, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And I said, Ryrie's translation on that is, if you want the milk, you got to put up with the manure. And that is so true in student ministry. In fact, when I was in student ministry, that's the verse I quoted to all the old people to get off our case. You know, do you want students? You're going to have some mess, okay? we got to live with that. And, and yet, despite that, you have to realize the more rules you have, the fewer people you reach. And so we can't let our rules take precedent over the mission. You say, how can that work out? Well, let, me, let me explain this. This is a little embarrassing for me. But years ago, I remember I got really mad at Ed Young Jr., who I'm Ed Young Sr., not Jr., Ed Young Sr., who was a pastor at Second Houston at the time. This is way back. Because it was Super Bowl Sunday, and it was Sunday night, and word got out that Ed Young was canceling Sunday night church to show the Super Bowl and have a big Super Bowl party at his church. And all of us little Pharisees were furious about it because here's what we said. You're putting football over worship? You're putting football ahead of Jesus? We're mad. And so that night, Ed Young's football Super Bowl party attracted thousands. Thousands were there. At church that night, there's just a handful for us because everybody else stayed home to watch the Super Bowl. Okay. Now I get it. Worship's important. Football isn't. I'm, I'm. But what if you use football to reach people. You see, that night at my church, that handful of people, nobody got saved. At Ed Young's church where they had the Super Bowl party, he gave the gospel at halftime 
And I think 300 plus people gave their lives to Christ. And that rocked my world. I couldn't let it go. I thought about it. I said, did Jesus command us to worship on Sunday nights? I mean, is that in the Bible? No, it's not. So why do we do it? Well, because we just want to. It was a rule. It's optional. You don't have to do it. It's an option. It's a man-made thing. It's not a biblical command. What did Jesus command us to do? Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go therefore and what? Go to church on Sunday night. Is that what he said? He said, go therefore and make disciples. And so all of a sudden, here's what I realized. I realized I was mad because Ed broke my man-made rules to accomplish Jesus' express command. And that experience had a profound effect on me and how I view everything we do. I told myself, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life feeding sacred cows. I'm not going to do it. And so three things came out for me, and I want to I give you these as we get ready to go. The first is people come first, right? Rules have their place. I get it. But we can't let rules become sacred cows to replace people. There are churches that are empty because they have long lists of rules, and they put those rules ahead of people. What is the most important thing in the world to Jesus? You, a person. Second, we have to examine everything. Stop doing it just because we always did it, you know. You know, I'm going to just say this. I'm just going to free you guys up. If you want to baptize forward, go ahead. There's no, you know why we baptize this way? Always this way, because most guys are right-handed, and they can lift the guy. And if you're left-handed, you're going to do it this way. It doesn't matter what direction you go. And if there's nothing in the Bible. I've, trust me, I've looked at this stuff. There's nothing in the Apostolic Fathers. There's nothing in the Antinicene Fathers that tells you how to baptize by immersion. And, and we just don't look at those things enough. Now, there are a lot of things more important than that we need to examine. And then the last thing is, let's help people heal who are hurt by the sacred cows. You see, sometimes you get trampled by sacred cows. And there are people in our communities that are church hurt because of a sacred cow. Maybe they, uh, maybe life got out of control and they fell into sin. Who hadn't done that? And sometimes churches get so focused on holiness, which is important. I'm not minimizing that at all. But we forget about grace. And we offer no opportunity for redemption. I'm not saying that you just ignore the sin. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you deal with the sin, but you always leave a path of redemption. And when you don't leave a path of redemption, then the person who's fallen into sin, if they get shunned and judged, they leave and now they're in the community and they're, I used to go to that church people, right? Because their church hurt. And what hurt them? A sacred cow. A sacred cow stomped on them. We don't act like that in our church, right? There always has to be redemption. And so you might have made some mistakes and felt judged. We want to be the kind of church that helps you find your way back. Maybe you got too honest and the people that were listening couldn't handle it. You know, everybody likes to talk about transparency until somebody gets transparent and then everybody gets uncomfortable and they sort of turn away. 
And that may have happened to you. That's the exact opposite. Maybe you broke some rules. Maybe you didn't even know the rules you broke. That was me, man. When I first came into church, I broke so many rules and I didn't even know what the rules were. I just broke them. And I was in trouble all the time. I said dad gummit one time from the pulpit and I got blessed out by some deacons on that. I didn't even know that was a bad word. I shouldn't have even said it just then. <laughs> or maybe you just got sick of all the rules. I get it, it's easy to leave church because of sacred cows, and, but I hope you hear this. Jesus loves you and he died for you and he wants a relationship with you and don't let anybody tell you anything else. He went to the cross for your sin. That's how, much, that's how seriously he takes your sin. And the moment you repent of that and you give your life over to Jesus, there's healing and redemption and reconciliation. I don't care what some church told you. That's the truth. And we need to be the kind of church that's about that. It's about helping people who've been trampled by sacred cows. Now look, we need to make some commitments to this regard. We need to realize the awesome power of Christ. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He can heal you today. But you have to be willing to be healed. Do you want to get healed? And for the rest of us, let's make it possible for people to get healed again. Instead of a church full of sacred cows, what if we made this Bethesda the place of healing, the house of healing? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful story in John that becomes for us a cautionary tale because I, I will readily admit I can easily become a Pharisee and I can be more about the rules than people. And I can look a guy in the face who just got healed from 38 years and care more about the fact that he's carrying his pallet than the fact that Jesus just did a miracle. And I, I confess that to you and I lay that at your feet and I pray for your forgiveness. Because Father, we do not want to nurture sacred cows. And I pray that we would be the kind of church that never lets that happen. But Father, I pray for those that have been injured by churches, whether they hear me on the radio or through the internet or in this room, that they would realize that you love them, you got a plan for their life, and they'd stop putting their eyes on people, put their eyes on you, let you be the healer and the redeemer of their soul. They just come to you right now in this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy for your healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.